You're listening to The 66, a podcast where we survey the books of the Bible one book at a time. I'm Drew Kaiser, and I'm with Andrew Kingsley, and we're wading through the book of Ezekiel. We are looking at the second vision. It's going to be the title of today's episode, The Second Vision, uh, being kind of a sequel to the vision we first encountered in chapter one. Correct. In fact, I think Ezekiel Mm -hmm. makes a comment about how this is, you know, he doesn't say this is the sequel of chapter one, but he says something like that. Like he said in verse four of chapter eight, it's like the vision that I saw in the valley. Correct. Which I'm assuming Andrew is the vision that we've already spoken of in chapter one, right? Yeah, he brings it up again later, um, talking. I think it's in chapter ten or chapter eleven. He says these are the same things I saw in the former vision. Right. Uh, here it is, verse 20 of chapter 10. So he brings it up again. He brings yeah. it up several times. This is a sequel, but mm-hmm. it has some new things, and it is not identical in every way to what we saw before. There's some really interesting things here. Mm-hmm. So we're going to cover Ezekiel chapters 8 through 11 and look at this second vision and see what God is communicating through it to his people who are Part of them are in captivity by this point. Part of them are a vassal state in the city of Jerusalem still. And, of course, others are scattered all over the known world. So they're they're very disjointed right now. And uh, as we will learn, they still have a lot of problems. Right. Want to take it from there? Sure. Uh, There are three main things that we're going to see in this vision. So in spite of all the confusing things that might be in here, here's three big takeaways. In this vision... Ezekiel is going to see idolatry taking place in the temple. Remember that Ezekiel physically is in uh, this place by the Kibar Canal uh, outside of Babylon. That's where he is physically, but in the spirit it says he is taken up into Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. So he's going to the temple. He's going to see this stuff going on in the temple. Uh, Some debate about whether or not this was like in real time or not is interesting for the next section right uh that's in chapter eight chapter nine uh, there's a little bit about the destruction of the people and then in chapters 10 and 11 we're going to read about that image of god's glory leaving the temple in jerusalem which will be extremely significant for any of the jewish listeners at the time uh certainly would have meant a lot to them for the image of the glory of god to leave their beloved city and even the temple uh, God's street address in the Old Testament, if there, mm-hmm. if you can say such a thing. Um, so let's get into chapter 8. You're going to see four uh, abominable acts going on in the temple, and that just comes from uh, the abominations that he's going to see. The first one uh, you read about in verse 3. So there's, uh, well, let's go ahead and read this in verse 2. Then I looked, and behold, a form that had the appearance of a man, Below what appeared to be his waist was fire, and above his waist was something like the appearance of brightness, like gleaming metal. So similar to the uh, man sitting on the throne that we already read about from the first few chapters. Uh, He's going to kind of walk him through and show him all these things. Verse 3, he put out the form of a hand and took me by the lock of my head. And the Spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven and brought me in visions of God to Jerusalem to the entrance of the gateway of the inner court that faces north, where was the seat of the image of jealousy, which provokes to jealousy. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was there, 
like the vision that I saw in the valley. So he sees this image of jealousy. Um, the New Living Translation translates, translates this passage as a large idol that has made the Lord jealous. Some debate on what this idol may or may not have been, but just understand there was an idol in the temple complex. So he sees this idol in the temple complex, and in verse 6 he says, Son of man, do you see what they are doing, the great abominations that the house of Israel are committing here to drive me far from my sanctuary, but you will still see greater abominations. So basically he says, you think that's bad, let me show you something even worse. Um, in verse 8, he begins to reveal some of the hidden idolatry of the elders of Jerusalem. Verse 8, then he said to me, son of man, dig in the wall. So I dug in the wall, and behold, there was an entrance. And he said to me, go in and see the vile abominations they are committing here. So I went in and saw, and there engraved on the walls all around was every form of creeping thing and loathsome beasts and all the idols of the house of Israel. And before them stood 70 men of the elders of the house of Israel. So or in verse 12, he completes this and says, Then he said to me, Son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel are doing in the dark, each in his room of pictures? For they say, The Lord does not see us, and the Lord has forsaken us. So the second abomination that he sees, the leaders of the nation are hiding out in part of the temple, worshiping these false gods that they have carved, that they have carved into the walls here. Um, so that's Does the second. Does seventy thing. mean the Sanhedrin? I'm not sure. Was it developed at this time? You know, I'm not sure. I don't think so. Uh, I have to go back and check on that, but I don't think so. Maybe just a a symbol. It, it's hard for me to take this particular number seventy as a symbol yeah. because it's representing something bad. It's pretty consistent that when the number seven is used as a symbol, it's used as a symbol of divine perfection. Yeah. And so I've wondered, you know, is this the Sanhedrin? And I also saw another translation, uh, kind of um, 70 men. Well, never mind. I, okay. <laughs> I'm confused on that. Go on. Well, we, we'll come back to that. I'm interested to I go back to, to that, too, in the next section. Okay. okay. Um, I need to make a note about the Sanhedrin. Just everybody, uh, here, you but... know, everybody just hold on. Andrew's making a note. Got it. Boom. Three, okay, two, so the one. next one. Uh, and then in verse 13, he says, you will still see greater abominations that they commit. So with each one of these, he says, basically, you think that's bad? I'm about to show you something else. So the third one, he finds these women weeping for this Babylonian god, Tammuz. How do you feel about that pronunciation? Sounds good to me. Pretty good. Tammuz. I know that is not, that that doesn't Tammuz. look Hebrew, right? It looks Assyrian or... yeah. I'm, my Assyrian is pretty rusty at the moment, so I'm not 100% sure. But basically, verse Tammuz. 14, Tammuz, yeah, I like that. He brought me to the entrance of the north gate of the house of the Lord, and behold, there sat women weeping for Tammuz. Uh, then he said to me, Have you seen this, O son of man? You will still see greater abominations than these. Now this guy, Tammuz, uh, is a Babylonian deity who... In spite of, there's a couple different stories about the god, but here's here's the deal why they're weeping for Tammuz. Basically, this is a god of fertility that when the winter comes, he dies. And so that's why your crops die. And then they would cry and weep and mourn for this god Tammuz to be resurrected, and then he'd be resurrected in the spring. So 
they're basically out there worshiping this false god. They're weeping in hopes that he'll come back so they can have their crops, which is why it's an abomination. And they're afraid if they don't have this little funeral service for the god that dies, that he's not going to come back to life. Right. So they do it. And, and we're talking about no Israel crops. here. We're not yeah. talking about the Babylonians. And look where we are, too. We're at the entrance of the north gate of the house of the Lord. So we're at the temple. Like this is going on at the gate of the temple. Mm-hmm. The and house so there of God. probably was an actual analogy to this, right? Um, yeah. Whereas, whereas some of this is obviously symbolic and figurative, there probably was really some kind of image of Tammuz or some circum, uh, some event of the women mourning for Tammuz. Yeah. In the temple complex. Oh yeah, it it seems seems to be that this is definitely not too far of a stretch to say that actually happened um, at one point or another. Then this fourth thing that he is going to see uh, starts in verse 16. It brings him into the inner court of the house of the Lord. And behold, at the entrance of the temple between the porch and the altar were about 25 men, this is significant here, with their backs to the temple of the Lord and their faces toward the east, worshiping the sun toward the east. So this final thing that he's going to see is that there's a group of people turned away from the temple of God in order to worship the sun. That's the fourth um, abomination that he's going to see in the temple. Now, when we get into chapter 9, God's going to talk about a little bit about what he's going to do because of these abominations. In verse 4, though, he mentions that several people will be uh, saved. The Lord said to him, Pass through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. So there will be those who are spared that have this mark, um, but God is sending in basically uh, this wrath and punishment that's going to do this in verse 5. To the others, he said in my hearing, pass through the city after him and strike. Your eye will not spare and you shall show no pity. Kill old men outright, young men and maidens, little children and women, but touch no one on whom is the mark, and begin at my sanctuary. Some pretty harsh words there, but notice how he builds up the abominations that are going on in the place that's supposed to be holy, where God said in verse 6 of chapter 8, they're trying to drive me far from my sanctuary. Now in verses 4 and 5, he's talking about going through and wiping everyone out, starting at my sanctuary. So begin at that place where the corruption is at its worst, and let's move out from there. A lot to discuss there, but we'll come back to that in the next section. Now, when we get on to chapter 10, we come back to this image of the glory of God, which, if you remember from the first chapter, has to do with these cherubim, uh, the wheels that have eyes on them, the throne on top of the wheels, and then the fiery man sitting on top of the throne, He sees this image again in chapter 10, and he defines that as what he has previously seen in verse 20. Uh, By the end of chapter 10, this glory of the Lord has kind of moving out. It's moved. I don't know why I keep saying that. Does it make me sound smarter? Moving? Uh, No. No, I think... It has moving. Butchering the English language is not... Moved. It's the problem with all these old hymns that we sing. It makes moving... Well, they're trying to get the beat... You know, the cadence of the words. It messes up the way we speak, though. This is not like a beatnik 
Well, it might need to be. We'll slam, go back and poetry slam. <laughs> yeah. Just we'll read the Bible. <laughs> poetry slam, huh? Those are two I words can, I, I would have never put together. I, I don't know if that's a real word. Poetry and slam. Yeah. That's uh, pretty intense. Okay, so something about the Bible is what we were saying. Verse 18 yeah. and 19 of chapter 10, this glory of the Lord that he sees is going to move out from the middle of the temple, moving out towards the east gate. It hasn't left the city yet, but it's moving in that direction. Um, chapter 11 is kind of almost a, a parenthetical here with some judgment on wicked counselors. And then also God is going to mention the new heart and the new spirit that he's going to give to his people. In verse 14 to 21, very important, we will discuss. But as far as this vision of the glory of God is concerned, the final part happens in verse 22 uh, and following. Here's what he says. Then the cherubim lifted their wings with the wheels beside them, and the glory of the God of Israel was over them. And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city. And the Spirit lifted me up and brought me in the vision by the Spirit of God into Chaldea to the exiles. Then the vision that I had seen went up from me, and I told the exiles all the things that the Lord had shown me. So that ends the second vision. A few things in there that we left out uh, on purpose, though, that we can discuss in the next couple sections. Right. I have a couple of questions. All right. Well, I have a comment. Um, this not only um, describes a, a similar vision or a sequel to the vision in chapter 1, it begins the way chapter 1 began. And I don't know if our listeners or you remember the point that I made from chapter 1, verse 1, that I read into it a tone of gravity. And, you know, a lot of folks wish that God spoke to them or that God spoke, you know, directly instead of through his word. And this should give them pause because in chapter 1, it's vague, it's subjective mm -hmm. here, but I believe the tone of it is very grave as he said, I saw visions of God. And I guess I'm reading into that that grave tone because I see where that leads Ezekiel to have to do things like lay on one side for 390 days or yeah. not mourn the death of his wife. Right. When you get to chapter 8, it's even clearer. Look at how this begins. He's sitting, and this happened. He receives this vision as he is sitting with the elders of Judah. So they're there, and he goes into this vision right there in front of them. And I don't know what that means, you know. Right. If his eyes rolled back in the back of his head or it just came to him and he was telling them this, prophesying. Mm -hmm. But it happened at that point, which I think is significant. But the way that he describes the vision is that the hand of the Lord God fell upon me there. Now, I know that's a figure of speech and it's an idiom. But the idea of you know the hand of the Lord falling on somebody isn't an easy, just enjoyable experience. Right. It's an important experience and one of grace as God is giving his people direction through Ezekiel that they didn't deserve. But still, it's hard on Ezekiel. Right. And so I think uh, people need to be careful what they wish for and be, you know, be glad that God, that other men have paid the price to be God's penman of inspiration. Mm -hmm. I, I think that's important. Uh, I wanted to ask you something else. This may be too trivial to bring up right now, but... Especially in chapter 8, there is mention, several times there's mention of the house of Israel. One example I'm looking at is in verse 10. 
the house of Israel is brought up, you know, at least a couple of times, and then also Judah. Mm-hmm. But at this time, only Judah remains, and it's about to be destroyed. Israel had been destroyed by the Assyrians yeah. over 100 years prior to this. Is there anything to that, or are the terms in Ezekiel, Israel, house of Judah, are they interchangeable? Um, now, I would be inclined to say here they're interchangeable because he's taking them he's taking them to the temple. And like in verse 6, he says, do you see the abominations that the house of Israel are committing here? Which makes me think that includes Judah because they're there. Um, but mm-hmm. later on, there's going to be a distinction made between the two. Um, oh, yeah? Speaking of their... Um, I'm, I'm turning over here right now. They're given two different names, Ahola and Oholaba, in chapter right. 23. Uh, so there's a pretty stark contrast made between the two of them. But I do think back here in chapters 8 through 11 that we have, uh, you know, we have interchangeable use of that term Mm -hmm. uh, just based on the context. But over there in chapter 23, that's the only thing that gave me pause to immediately say. And in chapter 23, they're being, Israel is being, the northern kingdom is being represented. I'm not even trying to say the name. Yeah, Ahola. One of um, the sisters or whatever. Well, it says Ahola is Samaria and Ahola okay, yeah. is Jerusalem. So, right, right. But still, that could just be, you know, a figure, a symbol, or a, even a reminder of their destruction. Yeah. Now, I I can't find it. Uh, I've been looking. It was either jo, uh, Josiah or Hezekiah. Those are both Jewish kings that came after the fall of of Samaria, if I'm not mistaken. One of those, and I want to say it was Josiah, tried to get uh, Israel to come celebrate the Passover. Uh, Mm -hmm. So there were, at this time, now this is prior to Ezekiel, but it was after the fall of Samaria, there were Israelites that they could invite to, to participate with them. I don't know that they actually took advantage of that. Yeah, but so there's. It's just I don't know. I don't, it looks like they're using the terms interchangeably. I struggle with this. I I think the reason I brought it up is I struggle with it in class. You know, when I'm teaching some books of the Old Testament, mm-hmm. and when I'm teaching some books that came at, came after the fall of Samaria, I try to be really careful. And so I don't want people to be confused. And I, I try to just always use the term Judah or Judea, yeah, or something like that. But Israel is what people think of when they think of the people of God. Yep. So it gets, you know, kind of confusing. But hopefully we haven't added more confusion. Yeah. Uh, it's a good time for us to take a break. So we're going to stop here. And when we come back, we're going to get into some really interesting things for our Think section of the podcast. about we glossed over this very quickly in the reading but we do need to discuss it a little further in verse 3 we mentioned that when Ezekiel is first carried up in this vision as he's sitting among the elders of Judah right there outside of Babylon um, he's brought to Jerusalem in this vision of God 
and he's brought to the inner court of the temple that faces north, where was the seat of the image of jealousy, which provokes to jealousy. That's a mouthful. Yeah, the um, first, the, there are two jealousies there. Yes. It's, the second one's pretty easy. Well, it's got, you know, we, we need to do some explanation on that. But it's, you know, pretty settled that the second jealousy is a reference to Yahweh. Yes. And the the first reference to jealousy, I guess we start with that. Like, what does that mean? Yeah. Well, this term, it comes from... <laughs> Unless you wanted to do it differently. No, no, no. It's fine with me. I'm just trying to get my thoughts together here. Uh, it comes from a Hebrew term that it's definitely caused some confusion, and maybe you can see why. Uh it has nothing in common in this kind of context with human jealousy. So we're not talking about like the image that makes you want what that what's on the image or something like that. You know, yeah, when we think that, of, oh yeah, like a like a BMW. Yeah, exactly. Or, you know, that's not the back then of, it would have been like a really fast horse. Yeah, or, really a Mustang. But <laughs> uh, we need a laugh track. That would be perfect there. Um, anyway, so it's not that kind of jealousy. Mm-hmm. It it has this connotation of it of acquiring one's own property. Um, and according or purchasing, to... purchasing. You know, there's yes. like some connotation of money exchange. Yeah. And I yeah, bring that up. Acquiring property. Not because it helps us understand, but just because I heard that one time. And I'm trying to impress you with my knowledge. Yeah, it's working. Uh, But no, that's exactly what I'm reading here out of this commentary. It says, inquire, acquire one's own property. Um, But here's here's the way to think of this. Uh, We're definitely not talking about God being jealous because this other God has a statue and he doesn't. Because it's got nothing to do with just wanting something that this other God has. When we talk about God being a jealous God, I think we all understand what that means. But this is definitely talking about God not getting something that he completely deserves. Not because God is arrogant, not because God is selfish, but simply because God, who he is and his very nature, he is deserving of everyone's, and specifically here, the people of Israel. He is deserving of all of their glory all of the time, and that's what that temple was built for, was to house the glory of God and was meant to be a place that was holy and to the sole purpose was to honor and to glorify God. Now, part of that had been given up for the sake of a false God. And you remember from the Ten Commandments, you shall have no other gods before me. So here, maybe they're not trying to have another God before God, but they're definitely trying to split up the allotted area for God with other gods. Now, this could have been a few other idols. I know we're talking in the break, one that Manasseh from 2 Kings 21.7 put up in the temple, an image of Asherah, who is a fertility goddess. Um, Josiah got rid of that. It goes along with Baal. Our listeners are probably more familiar with Baal. But Mm -hmm. almost every reference to Baal, somewhere around there, is going to be an Asherah. Which is right. like a, a pole, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, yeah, sort of like that. Um, Josiah removes that, and then it's been speculated, though, that one of Josiah's uh, 
successors that was much less righteous than he probably put it back up uh, by the northern gate. Uh, Zedekiah could have done it himself. Um, Which, think about this. This means they had it in the temple complex. Right. You know, very close to the altar of sacrifice mm-hmm. in holy in a, in a holy territory where they were. I mean, Nadab and Abihu brought fire in there that wasn't allowed in there, according mm-hmm. to Leviticus ten, and they were struck dead for doing that. Yeah. So this is far more serious. It's not just you know fire, which is fairly neutral, mm-hmm. but this is this is a, a, another arrival to God. You know, Correct. that's a rival to God. So I think what, you know, a lot of people are scratching their heads. Why are they doing this? And I think this is an important point to bring out here. And we'll come back to the jealousy in a moment. But the important point to bring up is that they, I don't know that they were adding another God to a pantheon. I yeah. think they wanted to worship Yahweh in the way that the nations around them were worshiping their gods. And so, you know, we want an Asherah pole. Yeah. We're going to we're going to set this up right here by the temple. I you know, and this is a theory. I don't know that I can prove this, but you see people using these idolatrous objects and you know, later there's a reference to the pictures of the crawling things. You know, that's another example. These pict- we're going to use these mm-hmm. pictures to express our worship to Yahweh. We're going to use this um statue to express our worship to Yahweh. We're going to use a golden calf. It explains the golden calf in Exodus 32 a lot better. If you think of it that way, not just that they were like, "Well, Moses took too long on Sinai. Let's yeah. um, let's get let's make up a new god." Uh, yeah. No, they remembered in Egypt people worshiping a golden calf to represent God, and they wanted that aid. They might have thought of it as to worship. And I think in the Christian age, we need to pay attention to these things because. You know, people are introducing expressions of worship into Christian worship that haven't been revealed in the New Testament yeah. that that kind of add to what the early church did. And we need to be very careful about that kind of thing. Uh, right. That's what was being condemned here. Not just, you know, uh, they're, they're, they're saying that, you know, Asherah is on the level of Yahweh or something mm-hmm. like that. Now, with that being said, you're right about the Ten Commandments. There's the first two are broken by this this picture here of the seed of the image of jealousy. Yeah. Which provokes God to jealousy, Yahweh to jealousy. What has been helpful to me is uh in the book of Isaiah, and this is one of several references. I'm not going to take the time to go over all of them, but I want to read from Isaiah forty eight, beginning verse nine where the Lord says, For my name's sake I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. Now, this, verse 11 is the real clincher here. For my own sake, for my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Now, that's the right. jealousy yeah. described in terms other than jealousy, which helps mm-hmm. me. Uh, why doesn't he give his glory? Why doesn't he share his glory with another God or another person? It's not the kind of jealousy, as you said, that human mm. beings have, where we're all, you know, we're equal, but but we want more of what the other person has or something yeah. like that. 
God won't share his glory with another because it's not right for him to do that. Right. It's, it's not righteous. It's not just. Mm-hmm. It's not real. You know, sometimes you have to think of it in terms of reality. In reality, yeah. there is only one God. So to say that there is another one equal to him, that's wrong. Yeah. And God doesn't do wrong or false or fiction. He yeah. does what is right. And that is the jealousy. It's the jealousy of righteousness that right. uh, that we're seeing here. Yeah, I think I had something to say, but I, I think that pretty much uh, covers it. Uh, definitely a different sort of jealousy that we see, uh, jealousy of God and then the jealousy that we have. Uh, I did want to bring up something else from this chapter. We brought up the possibility of Sanhedrin from the 70 men, and um, I did just a little bit of digging, and I can't find any reference to the Sanhedrin, uh, but there was in Exodus 24, uh, Numbers 11, Moses appointed 70 elders to assist him in governing God's people. Okay. Uh, so looks like what That's Ezekiel was seeing yeah. were the heads of the tribes or fam- families, men who should have been examples of godliness and definitely not promoters of idolatry, mm-hmm. which is what they were doing uh, in the dark and saying the Lord does not see what we're doing, mm-hmm. uh, which is something that we want to bring up in the application section. Uh, these men who say basically... The Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. Um, Can I drop something else on you? Sure. Okay. Look at this in chapter 8. I know we're doing most of our thinking from chapter 8. I hope nobody's out there sitting on something from 9, 10, or 11 that they're Well, just... there's there's plenty of stuff in 9, 10, 11. <laughs> okay. Probably... Well, let me make this one point, and we'll get into some of the other chapters. No, it's not. I'm not I don't have the stuff to dive into. Oh, okay, okay. There's, There's millions of things for them to pick. Yeah, we we have to draw the line somewhere. Look at right. this, and this is very unusual. If I'm if I'm right on this, in chapter eight, verse two, he looks and behold a form that had the appearance of a man. Okay, so mm-hmm. the first thing that he sees is this man-like person, and it his below it appeared that his waist was fire and above his waist was something like the appearance of brightness, gleaming metal, mm-hmm. which is the glory that we see in chapter 1. Right. So we've got that. And then he took Ezekiel by the lock of his head and the spirit, verse 3, lifted him up in visions of God and took him to Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. So we see a man, but then we see the spirit And then when he gets to Jerusalem, he says in verse 4, now he's left the man. Okay, the Spirit has taken him away from the man who appeared to him in captivity in Babylon and took him over to Jerusalem. And when he got to Jerusalem, behold, the glory of the God of Israel was there. Hmm. So three divine beings are being described here. I don't know if that is meant for us to... If we're meant to see that here, I could be mm-hmm. interpreting this wrong. But we it looks like the Trinity to me. Yeah. The a... man figure would be Christ, but in his pre existent state. So he hasn't been he's not Jesus at this yeah. point. He's he's the Son. And then uh the Spirit in verse three and the Father in verse four. Yeah. What do you think about that? Uh Man, I think I, a stretch, maybe. I don't know. Um, 
Because visions, you know, are fluid. You know, the visions don't follow ration, rational, linear narratives. I mean, the God, God could be in both places, and Mm -hmm. you know all that. So I I don't want to stretch it to mean something it doesn't mean, but that's just interesting stuff. I think I'm just checking back to chapter one to where what the man sitting on the throne. looked like well he had that fire you know below and gleaming metal above if if i remember correctly yeah it says there was something uh the appearance of a man his loins and upward was like glowing metal so yeah and then loins and downward something like fire so definitely sounds like the same man and in that first vision i think that's the depiction of the father himself so that would be my only question but that i mean that i don't know that that's too far of a stretch yeah there was there was something i read not from this one but from the final vision that he has there's another man that's similar to this that a lot of commentators do believe is jesus yeah and so if they would apply it there i'm not sure why this is the same commentary he doesn't even bring up the name here so i wonder well we have to remember as christians that if the Trinity is real, then Jesus existed before he was born of Mary. If Jesus existed before he was born of Mary, and he is God, he existed before the foundation of the world, which means he was in existence as the second person of the Godhead all through the Old Testament. And if he was in existence, why would we not see him in the stories of the Bible here and there? And I'm not going to take us so far out that we start getting into other stories that may or may not feature the sun. Uh, just, I guess just as a reminder that the tripersonal God, three distinct persons and one divine essence, was around at this time and acted at this time in certain ways. Yeah. Whether or not, you know, this vision, uh, that's a, it's not the point of the vision, so we, want, we don't want to hit it too hard. Mm. The point of the vision is basically God left Jerusalem. Right. God left it. God's leaving Temporarily, Jerusalem. but he's leaving his people because of their sin. Right. Uh, that's the point. I have one more thing for this section here yeah. before we move on. We we definitely read over this too quickly in the reading, but, I mean, we have to get through it. So sorry that we read past it so quickly, but we're coming back to it now. You remember that we talked about the people were going to be destroyed in chapter 9. There would be a few marked that would be saved. And then when we talk about the guilty being killed... It's really some striking yeah. language. You know, he says, go through the city, don't spare, show no mercy. Verse 6 especially sounds really harsh. Kill old men outright, young men and maidens, little children and women, but touch no one on whom is the mark, and begin at my sanctuary. So they began with the elders who were before the house. Which is, I mean, it's... It's pretty harsh to read, and even down in verse 10, he says, As for you, as for me, my eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. I will bring their deeds upon their heads. You know, he's not very interested right now in, uh, doesn't sound like he's very interested right now in grace, and he even says, you know, I'm not going to spare, and I'm not going to have pity. Let me ask and, you a couple of questions on this. Okay. First of all, and I think I know the answer to this, just... See if we're on the same page. Who does the speaking here? Who gave the order, kill the old man, etc.? This 
comes from, uh, I believe it's up here in verse 3, the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub on which it rested to the threshold of its house when he called to the man clothed in linen who had the writing case at his waist, and the Lord said to him. So this is the Lord talking. Okay, and I think he answered my second question. Who is he talking to? Who did he tell to kill? Uh, He's talking to a man clothed in linen with a writing case at his waist, and that's from verse 2. And who is this mysterious man in a linen cloth? Yes. Linen clothing. Okay. Yes. Now, is Ezekiel that man? I would say no. No, because Ezekiel is watching. He's observing. Verse 8, Right. he's the one, while they were striking and I was left alone. So Mm -hmm. when the man, I I may be skipping, so when the man clothed in linen and the Lord were striking these people, he fell on his face and he cried, O Lord God, will you destroy all the remnant of Israel and the outpouring of your wrath on Jerusalem. And uh, the Lord said, yes, because the land is full of blood and they're guilty. I mean, they, they committed human sacrifice, among other things. So here's what I see, and maybe, maybe I'm wrong. I've said that like 800 times this hmm. episode. Are we looking at a justification of the destruction of God's people in war? Are we looking at a vision that explains why God's people died in such large numbers at the hands of Babylon? So the literal narrative would be Babylon conquered Jerusalem, tried to put Jerusalem into subjection. Jerusalem Mm -hmm. wouldn't bow their head, wouldn't bend the neck to the yoke of Babylon. So King Nebuchadnezzar sent his armies down there to completely destroy them during the days of Ezekiel. That's the literal narrative And the figurative narrative is God punished his people for their sins and um, he is totally justified in allowing them to die at the hands of Babylon because of their guilt. And so he and this man in linen, which I assume means holiness, the linen seems Mm -hmm. to describe holiness, uh, God who is holy took care of this. He brought them the punishment they deserve. Right, and so when you see kill the old men, he's he's explaining the old men died, the children died in war, the maidens died in war, etc., because of the guilt of the people, not because of the injustice of their god. He turned his back and let Babylon come. Right, I'm glad that you said that last phrase, not because of the injustice of their god, uh, and I think you explained that very well. We've Thank mentioned you, this before. We're going to mention this again. Ezekiel 18 is saying the exact same things that you were just saying. Uh, Down to verse 29, this is particularly interesting to our discussion here. Yet the house of Israel says, the way of the Lord is not just. I think a lot of people can read this and say, well, God's not just. God's not righteous for doing this. But God is saying here, so Israel says, the way of the Lord is not just. O house of Israel, are my ways not just? Is it not your ways that are not just. And right before this, God has been saying this. Uh, Let's back up all the way to verse 21, really. We could go even all the way back to the beginning of the chapter 18. I think chapter 18 is a key to this whole book. It's a key. I'm glad you're bringing this up. I think it's a key to like the entire discussion on 
God's punishment of people. Yeah. Because he you explains himself. You don't interpret himself. any of that stuff until you read this. Right. Yeah. He explains himself completely here on how all this stuff works. Uh, back in verse 20, he says, The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteous of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon, be upon himself. If a wicked person turns away from all the sins that he has committed and keeps all my statutes and does what is just and right, he will surely live. He will not die. Skip to verse 23. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live. Let's skip down to verse 30. Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, every one according to his ways, declares the Lord God. Repent and turn from all your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed, and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. Yeah, that's so it. He lays out before them, look, this is just, you're going to basically, you are going to, uh, the soul that sins will die. If you're wicked and you don't turn away from your wicked ways, then you're going to die. And if he's pleading with them to turn. Yes. Don't make this happen. Right. You know, by, he, he is not responsible for their death. He is not responsible for the order in chapter 9, kill the old men outright. They gave that order themselves when they chose to ignore God and follow other gods. I know that sounds harsh. But that's that's the argument of Ezekiel. That's not right. Drew and Andrew t- trying to make something that's really harsh look better. That That's the argument. Yeah. If you don't like it, that's that you've got a problem with the Word of God. Yeah. But we're just we're just explaining what the argument of Ezekiel is. Yep, it's hard to get past Verdi, Verdi, verse thirty two, verse thirty two, where he says in eighteen in chapter. Yeah, yeah. I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, so turn and live. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you don't see great the grace of God in that passage, I don't know what you're looking at. But and this sounds harsh because we're not at at present in captivity. But if you've seen all yeah. the things that they have seen, the the language has to accommodate their particular situation. Right. He's not going to use 21st century American religious thoughts. Yeah. This is this is what people people were going through war and captivity, and it was really really bad. Yeah, you're so right. you know we saw some very graphic language used last episode, and we we're seeing it again here because those those were the times. Yep. That's all I've got to think about. All right. Let's let's uh, come back in a few minutes. We will uh, return with some applications from Ezekiel 8 through 11. Now we're going to apply. Drew, I've got three of them, and the third one's my favorite, so I'm going to try to go through these first two really quick. Hasten. Hasten through the first two. The first one is what these elders have to say in chapter 8 and verse 12. So they're doing these things in the temple, worshiping these idols, and they say this, The Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. 
And while there's so many things to pull out of that to apply, it's really a charge, I guess, to the gravity of leadership and what that means because you see what the leadership is doing and how they're saying, look, God doesn't care anything about us anymore. He's not looking at us. Um, he's forsaken the land. He's not going to do anything for us. So basically we have to turn and worship these idols if anything's going to get done. And we're the leaders of the people, and if God's not going to do it for us, we're going to get it done through some other avenue, mm -hmm. uh, which is a very dangerous road to take. And you see the effect that it has on the people. The people all jump on board. And so now we've got idols in the temple. We've got women worshiping gods in the temple complex. We have men turning their backs on God and worshiping the sun inside the temple. Mm -hmm. So all these things are taking place because the leadership has this idea of, hey, God's not taking care of us anymore, so right. how are we going to take care of ourselves? The moral is people follow the leader. Yes. If in the in the absence of good leaders, they will follow bad leaders. Right. That's right. And, and there will be people, if good leaders, if men don't want to rise up and lead, somebody will take that spot. Somebody's going to get in there and lead. And when they are bad, it doesn't matter how irrational or wrong it is, they will follow the leader. And yep. So leadership is important. I mean, that's just the practical yeah. lesson. Yeah, you're right. Um, and then kind of on the other side of this leads into our second application here. So he says, the Lord does not see us, but God's going to remind them that, yes, he does. Uh, mm -hmm. In verse 5 of chapter 11, the Spirit of the Lord falls upon Ezekiel and he says, Thus says the Lord, So you think, house of Israel, for I know the thoughts that have come into your mind. And in the context here, this is something we skipped over completely in the reading yes. uh, in chapter 11. But the Spirit takes Ezekiel up to the east gate of the house of the Lord and he sees 25 men. Among them are some guys whose names are hard to pronounce, but one of them is Pelatiah, the son of Benaniah. And he sees this man, and this guy says, particularly, uh, or excuse me, the Spirit says to him, These are the men who devise iniquity and give wicked counsel, who say the time is not near to build houses, the city is the cauldron, uh, and we are the meat. Therefore <laughs> prophesy against them, O son of man. I know the thoughts that have come into your mind. So basically the people are saying, We're going to be safe, we're going to be protected, you know, this is God's cauldron and we're the meat. And they're thinking that's a positive thing. But as we already know, that's going to be bad, right? Because they're saying here... It doesn't sound like a positive picture. It doesn't, but, but later on... But that's the way on, it's to be taken. Yeah. Is that they're saying peace, peace, when there is no peace. Right. And okay. uh, he is going to come down in verse 11 and say, This city will not be your cauldron, nor shall you be the meat in the midst of it. So, whereas they're thinking this is something good that's going to preserve them, yeah. here he's saying, well, you're not. And then later on, we know from that parable of the boiling pot that we've already talked about, mm -hmm. that, well, they are going to be the meat in the pot, but it's all going to be just literally disintegrated inside yeah. of that cauldron, which is the city. Yeah. So, uh, it's interesting to note that God says, you think that I don't know about these things, but I know the things that have come into your mind. I know what you're thinking. I know what you're doing. You're not hiding anything from me. You think that I don't see the land. You think that I have forsaken the land, but I am still here. 
I am in this temple that you are sharing now with these false gods, and I'm done with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now I'm about to be gone. So mm-hmm. the second application is God knows. God knows what comes into our minds. Uh, the third is my favorite here just because of, I, I guess it's the most positive out of yes. these three. Yeah. Uh, while it is comforting to know that God is with us and that God knows our minds, that can also be kind of scary sometimes when what's on our mind is not maybe as holy as it should be. But here, this final thing that we did skip over in the reading is very encouraging. So the word of the Lord comes to Ezekiel here at the very end, right before the glory of the Lord leaves the city, and it gives him this encouraging note, starting in verse 16. Thus says the Lord God, Though I have removed them far off among the nations, and though I have scattered them among the countries, yet I have been a sanctuary to them for a while in the countries where they have gone. Therefore say, Thus says the Lord God, this is verse 17, I will gather you from the people and assemble you out of the countries where you have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. And when they have come there, they will receive from it all its detestable things and all its abomin or they will remove from it, I'm sorry, they'll remove from it all its detestable things and its abominations. I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put into them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh, that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's beautiful. And it's used in a lot of Christian sermons and lessons right. about repentance. Mm-hmm. And God's the, the power of the gospel to make it possible for people to repent. I think it is, for me, studying through Ezekiel, and as we record this, we're already pretty much done with our Ezekiel class that we've been doing here at Asheville Road. So I've got, you know, the benefit of some added perspective here. But of coming through all the way through a study of the book of Ezekiel now, I've been very surprised at how much the power of the gospel has come up in studying this kind of obscure major prophet from the Mm -hmm. Old Testament. Uh, Especially here, where he talks about the thing that says, uh, I'm going to give this to them so they can keep my statutes. They can walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. They'll be my people and I'll be their God. The thing that changes, that's going to wind up really changing the hearts of God's people is not going to be just a renewal to the old covenant. It's going to be the power of the gospel, the power of what what something so uh, amazing can do to somebody the amazing grace of God and how that touches us and motivates us now to where we don't serve God just because, you know, we have a verse that says, uh, you know, love people. You know, that's not the only, we follow that command, not just because it's written there, but because we love God and we want to make him happy. So I think about, you know, the parable of the good Samaritan. The priest and the Levite don't help the guy dying on the side of the road. And I'm convinced the only reason they didn't help him is because the law didn't say, hey, if you're going from Jerusalem to Jericho and you see a guy dying on the right side of the road, stop and pick him up. Mm-hmm. If the law had said to do that, both of those men would have stopped and done it. Yeah. Because yeah. they believed the way that they got or the, the way that they received righteousness was by doing everything the law said. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, while it's right to focus on the commands, it is wrong to focus on the commands at the expense of the very heart of the commands. The spirit of the commands, yeah. yeah. So now when we come into the New Testament age, we're not just talking about, you know, make sure you do everything right. We, we're not released from commands. We're not just, you know, hey, as long as you feel good about God and you feel like you have grace, go do whatever you want. Now we have the feeling behind, I guess maybe feeling's not the best word here, but now we also have the heart and the spirit of the command the command to match the commands themselves. Mm-hmm. So now we don't have to have a, a necessary explicit command for, hey, if you're in your car and you leave wherever you're at and you see someone dying on the side of the road, stop and help them. Mm-hmm. No, there might not be a command for that, but certainly... If we fail to do that, we're failing to show the love of God to other people. And that's, that's just right. a small piece, and we don't have any more time, but just mm-hmm. a tiny piece of how the obedience of the new heart is different from the kind of heart they were trying to obey from back then. Yeah, and I'll just add one more thing. It was never intended to be automatic. You know, you look at what you read in chapter 11, I will give them a heart of flesh Uh, Some people may make the mistake of thinking that's some automatic thing, but as we saw in chapter 18, uh, it's up to us to turn, repent, and and receive this and change our ways uh, to receive this chance that God has given us. We learn later that it cost him the the blood of his own son. Um, Mm -hmm. They don't know this at this point as they're looking at these things. Um, so some foreshadowing here that's really beautiful and full of hope. Uh, we love to hear back from our listeners. Uh, we received a really nice card from one of our listeners last week and uh, really encouraged us uh, a lot. And uh, so we want to hear all kinds of feedback, even if it's negative feedback, you know, some suggestions for improvement. Uh, we may listen to it, we may not, but uh, yeah. we still like to hear what people are thinking. So. You can send us an email, akingsley at arcoc.com or dkaiser at arcoc.com. Follow us on Twitter or Facebook. And uh, there are other, you know, give us a call, whatever, uh, text, uh, Skype, perhaps. Uh, Skype, I probably won't answer if you try FaceTime. to Skype me. It'd be a little weird if we don't know you. But yep. uh, we like to hear from you. And we thank you so much for giving us a chance to get into your ears and teach a little of the Bible as we have studied it. We've got more on Ezekiel. And so I hope that you'll stay with us as we complete this major prophet. So visit us next time on The 66.